All right. Uh, that is some of the Nicholas Bretel music that accompanies Andor, uh, the new series, fairly new series now on Disney+. Plus. It's a Star Wars franchise series. I think it departs from many, many, many of the conventions uh, of the Star Wars franchise in a way that I find very delightful and involving. We'll be talking about that. We'll also be talking about a documentary about Barney, uh, the Barney phenomenon. Some of the Barney phenomenon was kind of incubated right here in this building. So it's something we take a, a great interest in. And of course, I was also at Betty Ford with Barney for a while. I don't even know I can make Barney jokes anymore because this documentary, <laughs> this documentary kind of brings you up short, makes you feel guilty about any way you ever trivialized Barney. Anyway, uh, so who's going to be on the nose today, you might ask? Well, uh, Sean Murray is a stand-up comedian, a writer, the host of Nobody Asked Sean, uh, a podcast. He's also taking time out from his new job of announcing the time by banging hammers on an anvil. Uh, so I, like, I don't even know, did you, Sean, what do, what do you do when you, like, you can't do that? Is there somebody who backs you up? Is there like an automatic hammer that just does it or? There's uh, an alternate. There's, there's an, an alternate, alternate somebody, for sure. Somebody else who can do it. That's good. Carolyn Payne uh, is an actress, comedian, and dancer. She is the founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. She just wants to win and walk away. Uh, and Pedro Soto, if you haven't gotten that far into Andor, then you're not going to get that joke. Uh, Pedro Soto is president and CEO of High Grade Precision Technologies. He's not the guy you kill. He's the guy you pay. Um, that's a more of a Tony Gilroy joke from Michael Clayton. All right. So uh, enough. Uh, we're going to talk about Andor. Andor is, in fact, directed and created by Tony Gilroy. He's he is not the guy you kill. He is the guy you pay to do like a really interesting kind of noir project. Michael Clayton was his baby. He did more than he wrote or co-wrote more than one of the Bourne movies. Uh, and he brings a lot of those sensibilities, I think, to Andor. Uh, Andor is, I think, now we're six episodes in. There will be 12 in this season, followed by another season, which I think begins shooting next month, another season of 12 more episodes. So, Sean, I know you were you were with Andor right out of the gate. I just know this from uh, from Twitter where you get pretty excited when it's time to watch a new episode. Uh, and so I'm guessing you share my admiration for this. But maybe we can just talk about – I mean it does feel to me – palpably different from an awful lot of Star Wars stuff, particularly the Star Wars stuff we've seen on Disney Plus in recent years. But tell me how that works for you. It's um, it's sort of the um, first of all, yes, I have Andor fever and uh, it's sweeping <laughs> the nation. Um, it's sort of like um, what uh, George R. R. Martin said he wanted to do with uh, the Game of Thrones, uh, Song of Ice and Fire books, where he said he wanted to like, like what is what is um. Uh, Aragorn's tax policy, you know, mm -hmm. like you can't just say it's happily ever after. Like, how do you deal with this world? And um, that's what it feels like with um, Andor. It's like it feels so like real. Like this is a real world. This is real things that are happening. So much of like the recent Star Wars stuff. Uh, not only to, to mention that it's just focusing on the Skywalker of it all and like the Jedi portion of it, the, the Force users, which is like obviously we love lightsabers, we love the Force, but. Like, there's more to this world than that, and, like, Andor is really digging in on that stuff, where, he's, like, you can see how the Rebellion formed, which you never really think about in the um, uh, the original trilogy, especially, like, you just kind of jump into this world, you know that there's a Rebellion, but now you understand, like, oh, it would take a lot, and, like, you know, everyone who was a part of the Rebellion necessarily wasn't, um, uh, like, uh, a zealot, uh, you know, some of these people were, like, kind of, like, mercenaries, some of these people were just, like, I was kind of forced into this, like, just by the 
the empire just got so bad. So it's fascinating to see like a real world look at this world rather than just like um like oh we'll we'll force lightsaber it away. Right. I think you know in a way I was thinking today um, that there's a way in which the only really or one of the very few plausible noir characters in the canonical Star Wars stuff is the original Han Solo. When we first meet Han Solo, you know, he's a guy who hangs around in bars and he takes jobs, right? <laughs> and, he, and he says in various ways he is not committed to any particular cause. He is, he is committed to paydays. He's committed to and, – and in a way, you know, ultimately, obviously, that sort of gets burned away from him and he becomes this sterling character and saves everybody all the time. But – you know, Sean, there's a way in which that early sensibility of Han Solo, what's the job? How much am I getting paid? Uh, you know, it, it's perpetuated, I think, through this series much more consistently. Yeah, it feels like, um, I mean, obviously Han Solo is sort of the archetype for so many uh, characters these days, but it, it does feel like um, the the sort of ethos of like what Han originally was um kind of carries through through the show and I, I love that because i feel like so much of like later later star wars and i love some of the like i like rogue one a lot i love the last jedi but it's like so much of it is just like now you're just getting like the the sort of um like the popular idea of what the character is versus like what they actually used to be like you just kind of get like a han solo type as han solo rather than like uh no han solo used to be like a, a scruffy guy now he's like uh you know, different uh, and old, uh, and that's not fun. Um, but tell me about it. Uh, no, I, I can't yet. It's my but birthday tomorrow. Don't bring these things up. Hey, before we uh, <laughs> go much further, I want to get Carolyn and Pedro into the mix. But first, we should give you a little bit of sense of the sound of this. Uh, you're going to hear something from episode two. Um, you'll hear the lead, Diego Luna, plays Cassian Andor. Uh, you'll hear uh, Fiona Shaw as Marva Andor, Andor his mother. Um, and uh, you'll hear Dave Chapman, I didn't know this, as the vo voice of B2EMO. B2EMO? I, I forget. Anyway, uh, so you'll hear just a little bit of that right now. A1. Read it to him, P. Read what? A Primor authority is seeking a Canary male resident of Ferex for questioning. Citizens with any information should contact the Priox Morlana Security HQ without DD delay. Who else knows? About what? That you were born in Canary. You don't want to hear what happened? We'll get to that. But who knows? Who have we told? I don't know. I. We have always said Fest. Every doc I've ever submitted has always said you were born on Fest. Have you ever said anything other than Fest? Officially, no. I don't think so. But people, yes. Who? And so do well, you. Well, how many? I don't know. It's not something I've been keeping track of. When everyone I've told is dead. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Jesse. Sam. Huh? That's family. If we're making a list, we're making a list. Well, it's all your women I'm worried about. Oh, come on, please. Femi, Carla, Stop, Sombri. stop, stop. There's something they don't even know. Baba Vix. Vix has nothing to do with well, this. Well, then who told these primo bastards about Canary? That would be me. Lucien. What have you done? I messed up. A couple of other little things here. First of all, I should say that these 24 episodes will ultimately take us up to the events of Rogue One, which I believe was co-written by Tony Gilroy. I guess he's not directing much here. He's kind of more the showrunner, writer, creator of this whole thing. So, Carolyn, 
First of all, you sent shockwaves through the NOS community earlier this week. Be, explain, explain what it was. You, you misunderstood something about the title of Andor. And let me just set this up a little bit. In general, when we make Carolyn watch anything that's sort of fantasy, nerd-driven content, we're basically leading a very unwilling horse to water uh, and, and then trying to make her drink. Uh, that turns out to be a little different here. But explain your misunderstanding. Okay, well, so I grew up loving Star Wars, like, you know, the original trilogy. Uh, My brother and I were really into it. We definitely had all the toys and everything. I have since kind of fallen out of love with Star Wars. It just feels like there's too much to be invested in. And I just honestly don't have that kind of time. Um, But for some reason, my brain, like, uh, Jonathan had told me we were going to be watching Andor. I somehow just like heard Endor and I got really psyched up that we were watching a show about Ewoks. <laughs> and apparently the biggest shock of all that to everyone was that I even knew where an Ewok came from. Yeah, um, we, were, we were generally shocked by this. So this, I, I'm guessing, I have reasons for thinking that maybe you'll <laughs> like this series a little bit better than you've liked some things. But I'm never especially right or wrong about your preferences. Uh, Colin, I am, uh, I'm sorry to say that you were right about that. Yes, I do like it. Um, I had attempted to get into Mandalorian, uh, and I couldn't really connect with it. And like I said, I've just kind of fallen out of love with the whole Star Wars universe. I have not really been able to get invested, but this show, um, I, I actually really, I really do enjoy. I, I think the writing is just so different and uh, it doesn't feel, and, and, and I'm sorry guys, but it just doesn't feel as like nerdy as the other ones. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's totally, totally legit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I just, I, I feel like this one is a little bit more uh, all inclusive in what it kind of, kind of appeals to. And uh, I, I enjoyed the way it's scored with the music. I enjoy how it's it's written, uh, the performances. I I actually, I totally went into this assuming I was going to hate this. And I put off watching it to the last possible minute. And uh, I, I actually intend to continue watching this. So take that for what it is. Well, there you go. Yeah, you know, Pedro, in a way, this is... You know, it really does have the feel at times of kind of a 40s and 50s style noir um, movie. Uh, you know, there's yeah. a, just a kind of Raymond Chandler thing kind of hovering over this. So given the fact that you are our most died in the wool Star Wars participant, <laughs> I'm wondering whether that was OK for you. Yeah, I mean, this is absolutely my favorite series. And this may be one of my favorite pieces of Star Wars in, in a long time. Um, this, this show, I feel brings it, it, this show feels as like the most, like the original first 1977 star Wars in kind of its attitude in that, um, the, the Mandalorian, Boba Fett, all of these, even Obi-Wan, they're all weighted with so much mythology that you do need to have like the nerd next to you to explain, well, this guy's from here and this guy's from here and this woman's from here. And this droid is, was in this because it's all that that's what they're playing with. So this one strips all of that away, strips away. Thank goodness. The Jedi 
and brings you back to the first movie where in the undercurrent of that first movie is there is this rebellion against this tyrannical empire. Here you go and you start um, playing in this world. So you don't need to really know anything about what's happening. And by making that, I think, intentional assumption, they're then they're writing the world in which allows it to be much more dramatic, the stakes to be far higher, to not know who lives, who dies, where the story's going. You kind of know at the end of it where it's going, but you really don't know where how, how they're going to get there. So it's not like putting... One thing I really, really dislike about prequels is that at their worst, they're about moving people into the positions they need to be in to get to the first series, and it takes away any of the drama of the story. And this one, particularly by episode six, I was on my you know, the edge of my seat, stressed out saying like, where is this going? What is going to happen? How is this going to end? I have no idea. And that was absolutely thrilling. Yeah. Episodes five and six are real nail biters yeah. and, and they're they're very exciting. And yeah, I mean, to that point too, Pedro, I've heard Tony Gilroy interviewed and saying that on the set of Rogue One, you know, there were sort of, I guess there's, there tend to be kind of, I don't know, Star Wars experts who would come running out and go, no, 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 you can't do that. You know, right. they don't have paper or something, you know, it's something like that. Yeah. And he said that's over for this. I mean, he really that's has, great. I had some, uh, he had the ability really to make his own mm-hmm. decisions about what kind of world this is, what kind of, you know, world he's building within reason, obviously. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, Sean, You've already kind of alluded to this, but I think some of the fun of this or some of the what makes it really intriguing is, yeah, there aren't any Jedis. There aren't any cute little spunky ransom of Red Chief little kids. Uh, there are so kids, far. though. There are kids. Yeah, there are kids, yeah. but they're not they're not driving the story um, the way which was the case. Well, for Sean, maybe we should just say this. I mean, I s- sort of had the feeling that with the most recent um, Star Wars thing on, on Disney Plus, the Obi-Wan thing, it felt a little phoned in, you know? I mean, it just felt like they just had the outlines of a plot. The plot didn't always even make sense. It looked like five guys on laptops. It really kind of created a lot of the look of yep. the thing. Uh, and, and so, Sean, I'm thinking maybe this is a, 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 another thing that's happening, which is Tony Gilroy is setting the bar in a different place for this stuff. I absolutely think that's what it is because I think with Obi-Wan, they sort of felt like it was like um, a layup. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, we bring in Obi-Wan back. Like, you know, all the pieces are in place that like people already like this stuff. We already like we already like Darth Vader. We already like Obi Wan, and Ewan McGregor is so willing to come back. It's like this. We don't have to do much. I feel like with Rogue One, you have to. I mean, Tony Gilroy is an amazing writer, um, but you have to go the extra mile because it's like, why do we even care about Cassian Andor? Like, this is a, a dispo- literally disposable character from a, a a movie that was was well liked by critics, but it wasn't like you know the biggest hit of of that year. So you have to think about like. How do we make this show at like worthy of the Star Wars name? Which is funny to think about, considering so many of the Star Wars shows of the last Star Wars shows and movies haven't been worthy of the Star Wars name at all. Right. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, another thing that I think you were alluding to here is in in the world that he's building too. Usually, with a Star Wars movie, if you see sort of working class people. It's, you know, it's because a Jedi is being brought up on the premises or something. There's some, there's some, but here, you got guys with boots and gloves and stuff like that, and they have kind of crappy jobs that they have to do anyway. And they're real people, and they're, they don't exist for some other plot purpose. You know, there's sort of a sense and, of, uh, you know, the people on the bus, they have real jobs. And Go ahead. Okay. Oh, sorry. And, and this, you know, and this is like, like you're alluding to, like this is world building 
as it should be. Um, you know, I think that so much of like this, like these, these like MCU, all these universes, they're kind of just like throwing in characters and just making it, oh, look, this is real world. But this is like, this is show and don't tell. And so, you know, you have that moment where um, Stellan Skarsgård is on that transport with the guy in the bus. Mm-hmm. And that felt straight out of like a prestige British <laughs> drama. They're just there circling the planet. He's just talking about this. And, and, and you know, um, the, the guy, uh, his name is Cyril Karn, uh, the, the, who we haven't seen in a few episodes out of six, but he's the disgraced security guard, uh, you know, going through and meeting with his, uh, his amazing mother. Like, it's really building this world without having to, you know, weigh it down with like capital, all caps, like mythos is just kind of showing. And also this show um, did, does rely on extensive use of practical sets versus Mm -hmm. the first of the three, uh, you know, uh, Mandalorian and uh, Boba Fett were predominantly green screen through this new technology green screen but it, and obi-wan was as well and it really shows and this one with physical sets um and you just, notice just you, so much better you notice the difference all right i want to just focus a little bit on one of the characters you just mentioned his name is cyril karn i think he's a little bit more than a security guard he's sort of a bureaucrat within this uh, evil corporation middle management. uh yeah he's middle management he's very ambitious um and he's really he's sort of a combination of a villain and just a pain in the ass. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so we're going to hear one of his early scenes. But pay attention to some of the writing here, too. So here's his kind of bored and tired boss, uh, Chief Hine, played by Rupa. We should also say this thing was filmed, I think, for COVID reasons uh, in England, which, I mean, you know, any guy with a mustache standing up on some battlements trying to make the comms work probably went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Like, everybody is, like, really good. But anyway, Rupert uh, Van Der Sart as Chief Hine and Kyle Soler as the irritating Cyril Karn. This is uh, A2. You've been very busy. Two men are dead, sir. Employees. That's not worth staying up for. Then I'm not worthy of the uniform. Have you modified your uniform? Perhaps slightly. Pockets piping and some light tailoring. I'm sure that in several days, with the proper resources, I can bring this case to a- Stop. I don't mean just the talking, I mean stop. This case appears to bear all the hallmarks of what I like to describe as regrettable misadventure. I don't understand. I want you to conjure a suitable accident. But they were murdered. No. They're in a brothel, which we're not supposed to have, the expensive one, which they shouldn't be able to afford, a drinking revenant, which we're not supposed to allow. Both of them supposedly on the job, which is a dismissible offence. They clearly harassed a human with dark features and chose the wrong person to annoy. I suspect they died rushing to aid someone in distress. Nothing too heroic, we don't need a parade. They died being helpful. Something sad but inspiring in a mundane sort of way. You look stricken, Deputy Inspector. Are you absorbing my meaning here? Trying, sir. So, Carolyn, I mean, another thing, this scene is kind of naturalistically written. I mean, the the older guy talks like a real sort of bored and burned out bureaucrat. uh, And and this is very much a series about, among other things, bureaucracies and why they don't work because people don't 
define their missions the same way. But it's also kind of funny. I mean, you know, that whole line about, uh, you know, has, have you modified your uniform? Uh, well, yeah, the pockets, the piping, maybe some light tailoring, <laughs> um, you know. And, and similarly, the little robot who we heard in the first clip there, you know, there's another scene early on where Cashin asks him to lie. And it turns out yeah, it takes more power from his battery to lie. Uh, and then so Cashin asks him to say something and the robot goes, that's two lies. Uh, and, and I, you know, I just found this engaging. I'm, not that the other Star Wars movies are humorless, but they're a little bit more. The humor is a little bit more in broad, wisecracking ways, whereas this really felt like somebody with a somewhat more uh, subtle and dialogue-driven sense of humor. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's why it is more watchable and more interesting for me. Like I said, if you like me, you know, there is that nostalgia with Star Wars, but this doesn't necessarily play on that, mm. nor does it force you to have to rely on knowledge of this Star Wars universe. There is a lot that you can just take in here and enjoy thanks to the writing and these kind of little moments. And I, I mean, yes, there's kind of some of those like classic little Star Wars things like the the droid. I, I love that droid. I think he's one of my I think he's my new favorite droid of recent times. Uh, but <laughs> I, I think that it just you don't have to go into this feeling prepared, which is what I was worried about. If you are not like super into all these nerdy facts and can argue about all these different moons versus planets <laughs> you can still enjoy <laughs> this uh you can still enjoy this show for a show and uh you know i'm i'm interested in seeing how it ties into leading into rogue one i um i think like the build up to that is kind of interesting as i did i did like that movie um as far as some of the newer movies go but it's just it's it's really watchable and draws you in to this universe that doesn't necessarily need to be that same universe of Star Wars that you know, whether yeah. really well or, you know, nostalgically. Absolutely. The series is Andor. We all like it a lot. We're going to take a little break here. Maybe we'll go out with some music, Kat, and then Kat and I are going to come back and tell you why you should support this program and this whole enterprise here. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. 
For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Okay, that's plenty of that. Uh, all right, so <laughs> I can't, I have to get out of this habit of being dismissive about Barney because it, the entire message of this documentary we're about to discuss is that that's sort of the wrong way to think about things. I love you, you hate me. It's a two-part Peacock uh, original docu-series directed by Tommy Avalon. Uh, it's, uh, it looks at the Barney phenomenon, which has some of its roots right here in the building where I'm sitting. Uh, but it, it's really about the kind of the pushback against Barney and also what it was like to be inside the world of Barney and what it did and did not do uh, for some of the key players and, and the people that they loved. Joining us, Sean Murray, stand-up comedian, host of the Nobody Asked Sean podcast, Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer, everything else, Pedro Soto, president and CEO of High Grade Precision Technologies. Um, so, Carolyn, uh, let's get started here. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think what we could probably say, in all fairness, is that Barney had never really represented the kind of children's programming that public television kind of bases its brand on, right? Thoughtful, intelligent, incisive children's programming, possibly without a keen regard for whether children all like it very much. Barney was like sort of – it was really for little kids, you know, and I guess really – Little kids liked it, but the rest of us had to endure things like the music that we just played. So I'm just, I, I don't even, I can't even place anybody in their generation anymore. Obviously, Barney was not part of your childhood, though. So actually, I was like kind of on the cusp, and okay. I have a brother who's three years younger. So he was like five, maybe, when Barney came out, or four. Like we were young. I was, but by the time Barney was like really popular, he was still young enough that he was kind of watching it. And I was like, can we change the channel, Rusty? This is not happening. I was old enough to just not be into Barney. I don't think I would have ever been into Barney, to be honest, just not my, not my thing. Um, but I definitely would not have, uh, joined a club bashing Barney as apparently millions of people did according to this documentary. Uh, the, but I can, so I remember like just finding Barney annoying. And this documentary tries to say that it's because he was so cheerful and just all about love that that sort of made him annoying. I, I think it was the voice. And I felt bad because in seeing the voice actor who played Barney in this documentary, he was one of the more likable people in this documentary. <laughs> so everything that I was basing my dislike of Barney about, but this documentary is so wild. And I couldn't decide if they like set out to just make this really wild, salacious documentary and really, you know, make everyone on the internet say like, oh my God, and and tweet about it. Or if they just kind of had no plan whatsoever, because it just seems so like on one hand, they have, you know, Bill Nye, the science guy talking about it and Al Roker. And then on the other, they have this, these men who these men who were grown-ups at the time and started entire Barney hate clubs because their child wouldn't turn around from the TV to pay attention to them when they came into the room and that made them hate Barney. So the just this documentary sort of having no specific purpose to me made it hilarious to watch and and it's worth watching just for watching 
the bird, the guy who's like that San Diego bird mascot. Yes. The famous chicken as he is. The uh, famous chicken, Mm -hmm. whatever he is, him using his reading glasses through the beak of his bird head (laughs) is to me that it, that he became an icon in that moment, but also helped define the madness that is this documentary that I don't really think has any sort of thesis statement follow through, but, uh, it, it was it was interesting. And also, like, I realized I definitely am Barney generation because the songs, I, like, knew all the words, too. And that scared me. Right. So uh, before we hear from uh, Pedro and from Sean, uh, I'll play a little clip from this. I should say that, and we're not going to spoil this. I would recommend that you not read about this uh, documentary, uh, particularly if you don't know anything about the creator of Barney and her own experiences and her own family, because there are things that happen within her own family that are kind of shocks, I think, or, uh, as you encounter them within the documentary. But this is, I think, very early in the first episode. Uh, you're going to hear her, Cheryl Leach, and some other folks as well. The message to love, to love everyone. Barney! That I love you, you love me no matter what, no matter who you are, just resonates. We were a great big family, and Cheryl Leach was just everybody's mom especially Barney's mom. Cheryl created Barney for her son, Patrick. Patrick, the reason we're all here. I don't think that they could have predicted the success and how it was going to impact their family. We had absolutely no clue what was coming. Die, you commie Kids love him, a lot of adults. Yes. Intensely irritating. You're all very special. I hate him. I hate him with a passion. I don't know of any other show that has inspired jihadists. To the people who own Barney the Dinosaur, y'all can go to hell. Things started just going insane. I'm not going to take this. This is my show. I don't understand why people get so worked up. It's a children's show. That last voice is, in fact, Al Roker. It's kind of a mystery to me what Al Roker is doing in this documentary, but apparently it was like available that day or something. Um, so, yeah. So, Pedro, I mean, I also feel like this is not the most artful documentary I've ever seen. On the other hand, it has the virtue of, it turns out if you point cameras at people who've been through all this, including some of the people who were little kids uh, who appeared on the series, uh, and then some of the kind of older, dumpier people who, you know, did other stuff on the series. and uh, I mean, they just have pretty compelling stories to tell. So I was sort of gripped with this by this documentary without necessarily really admiring it. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think the whole the whole documentary is constructed a la Tiger King, I think, you know, it's kind of, that's what set that, or, uh, you know, set the kind of template of these documentaries that kind of are, you know, pull the rug out from under you every five minutes and kind of get all this stuff, you know, that you're, they're going to throw in and then like 20 minutes later, maybe explain and then keep extending. Um, But I think that the overall inside the mess of it, um, there was some really compelling stuff. And I think that it, it did actually do a really good gloss over of, of kind of what it felt like to be in the 90s and putting some words to that that sense of snarkiness and sense of negative being cool, you know, Nirvana kind of grunge stuff that I definitely was growing up in. I mean, I was in college at that point in, in high school for, for the Barney stuff. And uh, it definitely felt, 
like I'm like, yeah, that's that's really kind of how it was. Like I remember actively not liking Barney, obviously not to the degree that other people did in the documentary, but but that sense of like snark and sense of being kind of too cool for stuff. Um, and and really how where they kind of take this hatred and and kind of project it into the future, uh, into the present, I mean, is really I, that really resonated with me. I think I thought they actually did a pretty good job at that. Right. So, Sean, first of all, most of us are way too old for Barney. But for you, Barney is like archaeology or something, right? You, you had to kind of go looking back into the past to figure out what Barney was. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a blast from, from the past, a trip down memory lane, a horrible trip, uh, <laughs> mind you, but a trip nonetheless. Um, Barney sucks. Like, I, let's just be clear <laughs> that Barney sucks. Like, the whole idea, like, oh, people hated Barney because he was about love and joy. It's like, Mr. Rogers is about love and joy. Nobody started jihad over Mr. Rogers. Like, what are we talking about? Barney was an awful part of my childhood that it's it's like it's insidiously, like, sort of stuck in my brain, the songs. But, like, the guy sucked. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you. I, I it was not good programming. I think one of the things that I think that the is sort of there as a subtext in um, uh, in the documentary is that, you know, things can really work as children's programming without being necessarily good. It, it's helpful if they're good. Uh, it means the adults can watch them. But the other way that people use children's programming is some mom comes home at the end of a really tiring day or and she can turn this on or she can put a VHS in the machine and get the kids to sort of watch that so she can get dinner on and stuff like that. Uh, I thought the fact that almost all of this incredibly toxic and destructive anti-Barney energy was coming from males. (laughs) It was... It was a little bit about like, yeah, because you guys come home from work and you want your kid to come running up to hug you or hug your knees or something because that's the level of engagement you have with the household. I think the moms were thinking, I don't really care whether this is great art. It They're going to sit there while I do the dinner and they're not going to set the house on fire. So it, so it's great. So, I, Sean, I totally share your – I mean the, the, those songs just curdle my blood. But maybe that's not really the point. No, I, I mean there's, there's a ton of uh... – like you said, like a lot of children's programming is just like to use to placate, you know, it's like I don't have the energy to, to engage with your child energy right now. So, like, just watch this thing. But it's like it could be good. You know what I mean? Like, like I said, Mr. Rogers, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It wasn't like the most high minded, you know, artistic thing ever. But the guy had a good point of view and he was he had his nice sweaters. You know what I mean? What, what more do you yeah, need? There is no comparison between Mr. Rogers and Barney, like, obviously. But and I guess that is kind of like how did Barney end up on on PBS where there was this like Mr. Rogers Sesame Street standard and Barney was this like crack that kids apparently just tuned into. But I I feel like most children's programming, with the exception of things like Mr. Rogers or Sesame Street, is just total garbage crack that children will just get sucked into so that they shut up. I see this with my nephews all the time. They are watching things that like I I hear the noise of them watching these little shows on YouTube or something. And I want to grab the phone and throw it against a wall to make it stop. But they are sitting there quietly. So that's probably a better choice for them. So I guess that that was what Barney did. Uh, It does feel like he was not, you know, part of that kind of PBS PBS zone mindset of uh, like learning enhancing programming. Um, And I am in, 
I, I don't know, but this documentary like wishes it was Tiger King. I think that that's the thing that it was trying to be so salacious. That was the only thing that really bothered me. They were really, really trying with all this stuff. Right. And, you know, uh, Peter, I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago, because I think it's important. There's a way in which you, you see these guys. One of them created like this Barney Jihad group, he called it. And I think there were video games where you kill Barney and stuff like that. And then there's another guy who started the I Hate Barney Secret Society. And there was like a newsletter and stuff. And at the end, he tries to link this, his totally boorish behavior to the fact that he has a drinking problem that he wasn't dealing with or something. And we're thinking, well, we don't really care about that. You didn't have to be so mean. But there's a way in which, yeah, you can kind of see, you could draw a line from those guys to Alex Jones without having to curve the line too much. You know, there's sort of a way in which the kind of destructive male energy you see from those guys uh, is, you know, it's kind of reaching a boil with Alex. Yeah. But for me, yeah, for Pedro. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, I I agree. I I think that like um, this, one of the, one of the, the the guests really on, uh, on the, on the show really drives it home when she says, um, you know, it's really not okay to kind of take your, the thing that you're really excited about and centered about like hating something and getting so wrapped up into that, which I really feel like is, is like the Alex Jones is like kind of, you know, some of this, uh, uh, you know, kind of boiler room uh, commentary about things about any sort of issue right now. And I think that like, yeah, like there, there it is. You, You kind of see it it starts off in this snark and it comes up in this thing. And then everyone kind of joins around in this, like this, this kind of hate fest and, and it becomes this almost like joyous hate fest, which is like, I'm, I'm deriving so much meaning from this. And um, yeah, you extrapolate that to now and it lines up pretty nice. All right. So it's uh, I love you. You hate me. Uh, is, that what, what, what is that what it's called? Yeah. It's called something like that. Uh, it's a documentary. It's two parts on Peacock. Uh, and you can make up your mind about whether you want to watch it. Uh, but don't take your Barney hate into the room with you because you'll end up feeling kind of bad about that. All right. Let's uh, take a quick break. The panel is, is going to come back and make some recommendations to you. A great big hug and a kiss from me to you. Won't you say you love me too? Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season three of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season three of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org slash WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. And uh, thank you very much, uh, and especially thank you to Kat Pastor, who is our technical producer today. Jonathan McPants produced this and this and just about almost every single episode of The Nose. Uh, and now it's time for our panel uh, to make some recommendations uh, to you. Uh, Sean Murray, why don't you go first? Perfect. Um, I would like to recommend uh, Veronica Decides to Die, which is a book by uh, Paolo Coelho who uh, famously wrote The Alchemist. Uh, this is a book about a young woman who um, 
makes a suicide attempt, and then she goes into a um, uh, which at the time was termed an insane asylum, and um, it's a rumination on like what it means to be mentally ill and the public perception of mentally ill versus like how the people themselves who are deemed mentally ill feel, and, like why uh, certain people are in entered into these types of facilities and what like you know, how they feel about it, and uh, it's based on uh, actually a real world experience that Paulo Coelho went through. And uh, I would also like to recommend just since we talk about Tony Gilroy, Michael Clayton, baby, because the one thing Andor is missing is Tom Wilkinson walking down the street <laughs> with a giant bag Man. filled with two. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, Michael Clayton is very nearly a perfect movie. Um, I mean, it really is just remarkable Uh, and not a a wasted line or breath in it, which I think is uh, also increasingly true for Andor. So, yeah. Uh, Carolyn Payne, what are you going to recommend to us? All right. Well, in uh, in honor of Angela Lansbury, who we lost this week, I am going to uh, endorse rewatching Murder, She Wrote. I know this sounds crazy. It sounds like a, a wild, <laughs> wild suggestion, but uh, I got into it a while back and then during the pandemic really, really went through them. Um, it is such a delightful show. It, I guess it, it's like my, it became my like adult Barney. It's soothing. Uh, it has murder, which like everyone loves. Um, it has really great, like, you know, celebrity appearances and cameos and especially like actors who we know now who are first starting their career on this show. Um, so it's just, it's really fun. And I, I highly recommend Murder, She Wrote. All right. We'll do a little Angela at the very, very, very end of the show too, uh, because she meant something to so many of us. Pedro, uh, what are you going to recommend today? So I have two, one general, one specific, uh, The first is in the spirit of uh, the uh, membership drive, pledge drive, is get yourself, um, pledge if only to get the PBS app, uh, where you can see a lot of the fantastic people in Andor in many, many PBS Masterpiece and Masterpiece Mysteries series. So you can see Stellan Skarsgård, Fiona Shaw, Anton Lesser, um, all of these folks and some people that are showing up in later episodes are amply uh, represented in the PBS world and everyone, so many of those shows are fantastic. And continuing on that, um, one of the best parts of Andor is Eben Moss Backrack. Yes. And if we didn't chat about him, uh, he's an amazing yeah. character with a fantastic story. And if you want to see more of him, the last nose I think I was on, we talked about the bear and he is in that um, to even greater effect. And that is uh, something that shows you how brief a series can be and still be absolutely um, not one minute wasted. So please, if you haven't watched The Bear, watch The Bear. It is just one of my favorite shows of the year. I think also one of the great questions about Evan Moss Backrack is, is he ever going to be able to play a character who isn't a little bit bent somehow? You know, there's like, yeah. could he just play sort of a normal person with he good, in, good intentions? He's going to be a chill guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, so I'm going to recommend, uh, just in the spirit of noir, I kind of have gotten addicted to the writer Thomas Perry ever since the Old Man uh, series that we talked about with Jeff Bridges and John Lithgow uh, and Amy Brenneman. Uh, and so I've been kind of going 
going through Thomas Perry's canon, uh, and I've discovered the novel Fidelity, which, by the way, works really well as an audio book. The audio version is really, really good. It is noir. It is bleak. Uh, it's so, It really is just straight out of the old style uh, of noir fiction. Uh, so I very much recommend that. And I don't usually do this, but I want to tell you that uh, on Saturday, uh, assuming you're listening to us on Friday, we don't typically do this. On Saturday at noon, we usually run what we think is the best episode of the week so far or something along those lines. We're actually going to premiere a new episode uh, on Saturday. It's with uh, Susan Rogers, who's written a really interesting book about how people relate to music, how the act of listening is part of music. It completes the cycle. It completes the the musical experience. And and so the the way that you listen uh, becomes, therefore, very, very important. So uh, just kind of plug in that idea, too. And now Kat and I are just going to spend a couple more minutes here uh, talking to you uh, about why you should support this, and then we'll end with a little bit of uh, Angela Lansbury because uh, we're all going to miss her and if there's a parade somewhere without her it must be a second class parade Was a parade in town Were there drums without me Was a parade in town Cause I dressed at last At my best and my banners are high Tell me while I was gay 